Well, my wife and I, uh, we, we're coming up on our fifth anniversary here in August. But in many ways, it feels like as we're, as we're getting ready to come up on five years, it feels like we've been here for about four years. Let me explain. We moved to Boone in August of 2012. I started work on a Tuesday. Students came into town that Friday. Some are graduating. And, and, and um, that Sunday night, we started College Connection. And so needless to say, five days in, we were all, all the way in. In many ways, we went right into survival mode where we tried to just stay alive as we um, were learning a new job, learning a new community, getting involved in this church. But if, if I'm honest with you, in a lot of ways that first year here, as we jumped right in, it felt kind of like a lonely year here. We were part of the church. I was actually here every day, um, joining you for all three services every Sunday morning and um, and yet we hadn't become part of the church yet. I only share this because I feel like a lot of people that move to Boone have a similar experience. They come to this tiny, rugged mountain town thinking that all their, um, it's like Mayberry and you'll get to know everybody. You'll go sit at the barbershop all day and talk to everyone and you just get plugged in immediately at this church. And that's really not the case for a lot of people for, for maybe several months or several years or maybe your whole time here in Boone, you just never really get plugged in you never connect. It wasn't until August of 2013 that Laura and I actually began to feel like, you know what, we belong at this church. We feel like part of the family. Now, I don't think time simply made everything better. It's not like we just needed to get a year under our belt. I think time has enriched the relationships, and the longer we're here, the richer the relationships come, uh, become. But as we look back on our experience of moving to Boone, settling into this church family, we credit the, um, the major transition to one thing, and that's summer. If you're new to Boone, we moved here in August. Um, we hadn't really gone through a summer. If you're new to Boone, you, you're going to realize that very quickly we value summer around here. Winter drains all the life and the vitamin D out of us. And so by the time the sun starts shining, we're ready to get out and play and enjoy ourselves. Um, except for some of you that actually enjoy winter. I still don't understand you. For the rest of us normal people, we have to work hard to recharge, and so we take it seriously. It's an obsession. We hike, we, we, we camp, we fish, we, whatever it is that, that uh, floats your boat. But this is the key, and I think all of us do this in the summer. We eat a lot. Amen. Yes. As I mentioned, Laura and I were in survival mode from August until May, but once the sun came out, we started going to people's homes. It's like the invitations started coming. Suddenly, we become hospitable in the summer times. And we actually started inviting people to our own house. We were living at a parsonage at a different church. I'll tell you this story another time. Um, but we were living there, and they had this basement that led out into this back lawn, and it was a beautiful lawn. And uh, we brought out our table. They had a spare table down there and all the chairs. It was a lot of work, but we, we were so proud of this thing. We'd go set our tablecloth out there and we invited as many people over to that little parsonage as we could to eat dinner with them. When I think about that first summer here at our church, I, I think of a few things. We spent a lot of money on food. We spent a lot of time dragging that table in and out. We spent a lot of energy doing the dishes long after our company had gone. And yet that was the summer when we became part of this church family. Here's my question to you. Was this experience just a coincidence? Did we just happen to choose one of the many avenues into life in this church? We just decided to have meals. You can do another thing to get plugged in. Or is there actually something unique about the dinner table that forms us into a family? That's what I want to explore this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> We're going to look at a same, the same passage we read last week, but today I want to focus on a, a different aspect of their life together, and that's their meals. 
When the church was born in Acts chapter two, one of the first things that the believers instinctively did, again, before they were formalized, before they had structure, one of the things that they naturally did is just they got together and ate. Luke wants us to know this fact. It's a key part of their mission. He mentions it twice in this paragraph that we're gonna read. So follow along as I start in verse 40. Remember, verse 40 isn't technically part of this chunk of scripture, but I think it serves as a nice bridge into this text. It's the end of the Pentecost sermon and it transitions nicely into the summary beginning in 42. So follow along as I read starting in verse 40. And with many other words, Peter, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, as we come into this room this morning and hear your word, we come hungry. We come empty. We, we come craving you, God. And so we just read the text this morning and I pray that your spirit would fill us this morning. Would, would these words be sweet to us? Would they satisfy our soul, God? We desperately need you and we pray that you would be here and be among us this morning as we consider your word today. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So we saw last week that this is a, a, a snapshot of the church's life together. If Luke is, like, you can think of it as like the first group picture of the church. Luke takes a picture here and shows us what they were devoted to. Peter, the, 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 the spirit had come to Pentecost. Peter had preached a message and 3,000 souls were added that day. And this is what they did. This is how they attempted to save themselves from the crooked generation. Peter mentions four, or, or, yeah, or Luke mentions four things in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to, four simple actions. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Four elements of their life together. I only have two weeks to preach this text. Scott's gone to Iraq for two weeks. I don't, I don't get four weeks to cover them all. So now, if I were coming to this text, and I had to choose, okay, what are the two most important ones? I, I would clearly choose their, their devotion to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. It seems like if you take away preaching and prayer, suddenly you've not become a church. You're some sort of gathering, but it's not a church. You have to gather to preach. You have to gather to pray. If we're looking at these four elements, it seems like fellowship and maybe breaking of bread, these two are expendable, maybe. Could you still be a church if we gathered to preach and pray, but failed to break bread and failed to fellowship? You could make the case that we're still a church, but I don't think that's a church I wanna go to. It seems like a church that gathers once a week to hear the word of God preached, prays a little bit, but never has any interaction with each other. I don't know if that's a healthy church. It seems like a dead church to me, which makes me wonder, is a dead church a church? Are these elements that negotiable then? Maybe they just 
challenge us in our modern context. Maybe we need to look at these and recover them. I decided to focus on their fellowship and their breaking of bread because it's what Luke decided to focus on. Of the four elements he mentions in verse 42, he unpacks two of them later in the text, and these are the ones that he does. In verses 44 to 45, he talks about their fellowship together. We talked about that last week. But in verse 46 and 47, what I want to look at today, he examined their mealtime rituals. They ate together a lot. And Luke wants us to know that. Listen to 46. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This isn't a random detail in the text. You're like, of course they ate. We've got to eat. No, Luke wants us to know specifically that they were devoted to eating together in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. This was a fundamental part of the early church's life together. They gathered around, and, around the broken bread, and when they were together, they reenacted the gospel and proclaimed the gospel to a crooked generation. It was fundamental to their existence. Now, a lot of commentators want to answer the question, and I imagine you're asking the question now, are they talking about communion or just normal meals? Seems like an important question. Commentators are split. They go back and forth. Which one was it? The answer is probably both. I don't think that they split communion on Sunday mornings and meals in their house throughout the week. It seems like whenever they gathered, they just remembered Jesus. He he was among them. And they celebrated um, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either way, what I'd like to focus on this morning is that eating together in their homes, receiving their food, was a central part of their lives together. And it's something I think we need to recover. We have a lot working against us, though, in our modern context. In our high paced, just blazing at the speed of light, food just kind of gets in the way, doesn't it? It's kind of an inconvenient, it's terribly inconvenient, terribly expensive to have to stop three times a day and fill your bodies with food, isn't it? And so fortunately in our fast food or fast world, we've adapted so we never have to stop. We have fast food. We grab breakfast on the go. We eat our our little desk lunches. You're not doing work. We all know that. You're checking Facebook. That's all good. We all know that. We grab lunch at work at our desk. We, We grab takeout on the way home. We just try to eat alone in the car. We act like machines. If I get the right fuel in my body, I'll be fine. But it doesn't work with the church. We're not gathered here this morning as a, as a machine. Just enter the right material, the discipleship resources, and you'll be good. That's not how we work. We're a body. And bodies need to be fed. And so this morning, I simply want to suggest a few reasons, four to be specific, why we should slow down and gather in our homes for meals. We need to sit down and look, look across the table at our family, at our spiritual brothers and sisters for, I think, good reasons why we should stop and do this. This is not an exhaustive list. I had to cut out so much and you're thinking, are you really gonna preach a whole message on eating together? There's more material than we could cover here in one morning. But as we approach this, let me be very clear. I wanna set the table. Here we go, no pun intended. T- set the table for you. I don't want to preach the power of a meal. My goal this morning is to preach the power of Jesus. The meals that we eat together are simply a tool. They're simply a resource that points our heart to Jesus. It's not the goal. So I don't want you leaving here thinking, man, I'm horrible or I'm doing great. I want you to leave here thinking, Jesus is so good. And I want the gospel to shine in your hearts this morning and and maybe recover one of these great tools that the early church used to point their own hearts to the gospel and to point the hearts of a crooked and lost generation 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my goal. So let's jump in. We're gonna look at four reasons. The first is by far the longest, so don't panic when I say second, okay? This is like the main course. When I say second, we're, we're close to the dessert, okay? So here we go. First, first reason why we gather, our meals reenact the gospel. Every time we gather around the table with our spiritual family, we're telling the story of what God has done for us. When we receive our food with glad and generous hearts, having favor with all people, we're telling the world what God has done for us. You could think of it like this. The gospel is God's glorious effort to bring us back to the table, to feast with him. This is the goal of the gospel. The Bible starts with food. Food got us into a really bad mess. (laughs) And the Bible ends with food. It ends with a giant feast. In fact, the primary image of heaven in the Bible is a feast. This is the goal of history. We're going to join around the table with our creator, and we're going to enjoy a meal with him. So let's jump in. Let's start in Genesis. Let me jump in. I believe once we see this picture of God wanting to feast with us, I believe we'll actually have motivation to gather around the table together. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden. Think about that. God's vision of paradise is a garden. I think of paradise, when I think of paradise, I think of the Caribbean island, somebody brings me food, right? When God thinks of paradise, he thinks of a plot of land with an endless supply of ingredients that Adam and Eve will get to cultivate and craft into meals. That's paradise. God is there among them. They get to feast with God. This is paradise, the garden of Eden. Listen to Genesis 1:29. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. What a brilliant narrative that we have here. An endless supply of ingredients that will be mixed and mashed and formed and, and concocted into these brilliant recipes that our taste buds are designed to enjoy. Wow, that was good. That, that's, how, that's God's plan, to feast together with him. Now, you should understand that this is a revolutionary view of the creation account. When Moses gave this account to the Israelites, they were in a world that had their own varying creation accounts. In most of these accounts, the gods struggled to create the world. It kind of, they, it kind of came on accident. They got in a fight and pff, the world came. And humans were kind of scattered around as an accident to, well, we need somebody to feed us. So let's make the humans to feed us ambrosia and nectar. This is the goal of the pagans. They feed their gods because their gods are cranky and hungry. Our God created a garden and placed us in it and said, let's eat. It's beautiful. He set the table. But you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve found the one table away from his presence and they dined with Satan. And they said, maybe that will be better. It wasn't. This is our story. Sin has taken us away from God's presence, forces us to eat alone, away from God. From this moment on, we will be refusing to come back to the table and God will be passionately pursuing us saying, come back. Let me just scan through history briefly. I find it very interesting that almost every moment of redemption in the Bible is connected to a meal. Think about the Exodus Ten plagues, the tenth plague is the Passover, and the Egyptian army suddenly is demo- demobilized. They can't move. Now, you would think God would say, Up, oh, get out of here, go. But God before said, Let's eat. 
Before you leave, let's just have a meal together. So don't tell me you're too busy to eat a meal. Right before they were leaving, God had the Israelites eat a meal. It was awful timing, but he wants to connect redemption to a feast. I'm bringing you back to the table. When God brought Israel through the desert, you remember this story. They're hungry, so what does God do? I'll provide for you. I'll bring you back to the table. And you remember how it went. I'd rather not eat this junk. It gets old after a while. They craved meat. They started craving the leeks and onions from Egypt. When you start craving onions, something's wrong. This is our refusal to go back to dine alone. We don't want to eat what God provides for us. We don't want to eat with you, God. That's the story of the wilderness. This is a, a profound story. When they're on the brink of the, of the promised land, they're about to go in, God's saying, come. It's a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. C- come in. Feast with me. And, in, and to show the Israelites how beautiful this land was and how wonderful it was, this is what he did. He sent 12 spies into the land. Numbers 13. And they came to the valley of a skull and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between the two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of a Skull because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Did you catch that? There's 12 full-grown men that are going into this land and they brought back a single cluster of grapes. When you think of a single cluster of grapes, you go down to that little drawer and you pull it out, right? This cluster was so big that they had to strap it on a pole and two men are bringing it back. They're grapes the size of your head. There's like a giant mill. It's like, I can only eat a half a grape today. It's an obnoxious picture of how good and bountiful the land is. And so these spies are coming back and they're going, it's better than you thought. God wants to bring you back to the table. You know how the story went. Oh, we should tell you though, 10 of the spies, there's some scary people over there. I wouldn't go. Okay, let's not. They decided not to go eat with God. They decided to dine alone. I'm jumping over so many, but I'll go to Proverbs to show you. It's in every genre. Proverbs chapter nine, lady wisdom personified begs God's people. Come back. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. What a beautiful invitation. God wants to bring you back to the table. We don't come though. God spread the table, but we don't come because we'd rather eat alone. That's the story of sin. So when God begins to send the prophets to judge the nation, your time's up. I'm judging you. Listen to the metaphors that he chose. Listen to Isaiah 28. It's a graphic picture. We need to hear it this morning. He's speaking to the religious leaders. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink and they're swallowed by wine. They stagger with with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment for all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. They're drunk. They've puked on the table. This is a graphic reminder of our stubborn refusal to come back to the table and dine with God. We'd rather wallow in our own vomit than to return to the feast with the Lord. It's the story of sin. The truth is, if you caught it in the text, there's nothing we can do. We're enslaved. I don't know if you caught it. They didn't just swallow the wine. The wine swallowed them. They were controlled by their debauchery. And it's our story. 
And I want you to see this picture this morning. We're wallowing in our own vomit. This is the tragic story of sin. And some of you walked into this room and figuratively, you're there. You're at a table by yourself. You're wallowing in your vomit. You have no hope. Food has lost its taste. You've lost your appetite. You don't care about anything and you think there's nothing I can do. Nobody wants to be around me. It's not the end of our story though. Though we filled our table with vomit, God refused to leave us in our misery. He promised, even in the Old Testament, he's gonna wipe it away and he's gonna spread the table and he's gonna bring us back to the feast. Listen to this gripping passage. It's equally gripping as Isaiah 28. Dial back three chapters, Isaiah 25. If you don't know this text, it's worthy of memorization. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I believe this text is a gift to the church. If the Israelites standing on the Jordan got to see those massive grapes and pomegranates and figs, hearing God's invitation, this is what lies ahead. I believe Isaiah 25 is the same vision for the church. This is what lies ahead. As we speak, God is setting the table. He's putting out the silverware. He's aging the wine. He's selecting the marrow. It's gonna be a good feast. But you know what was missing from that heavenly feast? Death is off the menu. Because God swallowed it himself. This is a prediction. I'm gonna swallow your death myself. Our tears, our sadness, our guilt, our reproach, they're removed because God wiped them away. He took them upon himself to bring us back to the table. This is how far God went to bring you back into his presence and to feast and to enjoy a beautiful meal with him. The world began to taste Isaiah's vision when Jesus came. Has it ever surprised you or have you ever wondered why so many of Jesus' miracles involve food? The first miracle he ever performed, he turned water into wine. He wanted to show the disciples the master of the feast had come. Whenever he publicly displayed his, his miracles to the people, he fed 5,000 people. The bread of heaven has come. On the night before he died, he gathered his disciples to celebrate Passover, but he completely redefined the meal. He broke the bread, poured the wine as a symbol of his own broken body and shed blood. I'm the ingredients. You come to the table through, through me. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. That's the gospel. Predicting this feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb that will come, it's the culmination of history where we gather back around the table with God and feast with him. So let's come back to Acts chapter two. Instinctively, the spirit came and they ate together. Do you understand why they would eat together now? Do you understand why they would be devoted to this simple act of going to one another's homes and breaking bread in each other's houses? God had brought them back to the table. It made sense for them to gather around their own tables to reenact the gospel of Jesus. I wanna say it one more time. Eating together is not the gospel. 
There's nothing that will save you by going over to friend's house and eating dinner with them. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel, but I can't think of many ways to express it and to show the world and to remind ourselves of the gospel than just setting the table, inviting your family over and saying, let's eat together. We've been bought. We've been unified. Let's feast. If we never eat together as a church family, I believe we're missing a powerful opportunity. So first, eating together reenacts the gospel. Let's move on to our second point. I'd like to bring it down a little bit. I've been up in the clouds, kind of going on a theological journey. I'd like to get down and just a a little bit more practical. Here's some reasons why I believe that we should eat together and some things that we're missing when we fail to eat together. Second, our meals transform the church. It has real power to actually change us. As we've just seen, Jesus showed us and and pointed to this wonderful feast, but don't miss the fact that he ate a lot. The gospels mention his feasting and his eating all over the place. He didn't just teach us an idea. He actually sat down and ate with people. And in doing so, he transformed the, the world. He transformed the lives of Zacchaeus, the prostitute, the tax collectors, the sinners. He ate so much and it was having such an impact that in Luke 7, when he said the son of man came eating and drinking, his critics said, yeah, you're a a glutton. You're a drunkard. You eat way too much. You share way too much grace with these miserable people, with these sinners and tax collectors. Stop eating with them. And Jesus is like, no, this is why I've come, to eat and drink. This is how I've come to eat and drink with people and show them the way to redeem them and ransom them. Jesus shows us how to eat with one another and shows us the power of a meal can transform people. So when the church, when we gather for a meal, we're not just rehearsing some theological idea, we're actually allowing the spirit to transform us and to sanctify us and to work among us. It seems like this occurred in the early church. The text says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It actually began to change them. Nothing brings us together like a good meal. A good meal unifies us. When everybody has a seat around the table and we're looking each other in the eye, that unifies us together. We were designed to eat together. In fact, your first year or two, maybe three or four, you never ate a meal alone. Hopefully. You were with somebody. The word companion is two words in the Latin Together, bread, come, bread, companion. It brings us together. We were designed to eat together. I wonder what would happen to our church over the next year. Just think about it. Imagine, if you will, what if nobody in this room shared a meal with somebody else, with anybody else in this room? We just all went home and we ate around our TV tables and watched TV and we never fellowshiped. We never looked each other in the eye. Would we survive Again, I, I think we would, but I don't know. I think we'd be in miserable shape. I don't know if we'd grow spiritually throughout the year. I don't know if we would disciple each other. I don't know if we'd be unified. I bet there'd be fractures. I bet sin would creep in. I think that meals transform us and it keeps us unified. It heals wounds. It brings us together. In fact, if there's somebody in here, and I'll just say this, if, if you're struggling to forgive somebody, and again, you, the Lord will tell you if this is appropriate or not. Have you, have you eaten with that person? Have you spread out and brought out the, the nicest silverware and cooked them your favorite meal? See if something doesn't change in your heart. I'm just gonna eat with you and see if the Lord doesn't use that in some way. The Lord will tell you if it's right or not. Third, our meals open the door for discipleship. 
Something happens to us when we eat a meal. You walk into a house at five o'clock, the kids are screaming, and you're like, oh, we've got another hour to eat, great. <laughs> All right, and you're just kind of hangry, and it's, it's I don't know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing, but then you sit down and you eat at seven o'clock, 7.30, eight o'clock, when you're eating dessert, you're drinking the coffee. Something changes, doesn't it? In fact, I love, one of my favorite times to teach to people is right after we've eaten. So a college connection, whenever we share a feast, it's like easy to get up and teach because it's like we relax and we're like, okay, let's hear the word of God. It's true. We just, we just relax and we're ready to hear the word of God. I believe that the early church in Acts 42 where it says they were devoted to these four things, I believe it all happened around the dinner table primarily. They listened to the apostles teach over dinner. They prayed over dinner. Well, they obviously broke bread over the dinner table and they fellowshiped with one another at the table. I think this happens. This has been a very good year for our college ministry. Again, in my five years here, I've literally seen a a massive growth spurt. You can just see spiritually, things are coming together, they're becoming leaders. I'm, I'm so proud of our students. And I would attribute a lot of the success to an event they call Matthew 4, 4 Monday. They did this on their own. They organized this. I didn't set this up. They just decided, let's get together and eat a couple of guys. Let's go ahead and cook a massive meal. Come over to our house from six o'clock to seven. We're gonna enjoy good food. From seven to eight, we're gonna read the Bible. And just this year, they've read a massive chunk of the Bible together. They just read it. They take turns reading. And then at eight o'clock, they, they process, they talk, often in tears about what the Lord showed them through that meal. And it's changed the nature of our college ministry. So every time you get together, listen, I don't don't wanna just encourage you to go home and cook, host people, never mention Jesus, never mention the gospel, never crack open a Bible, leave and go home. That's like a dinner club. Anybody can do that. At the church, when you bring people over, it's like we're feasting with our spiritual family and it is a perfect occasion to pull out the Bible and say, let's consider this psalm. Let's consider this text of scripture. This is what our family is going through. Would you consider it with us? If everybody in our church is doing it, it won't feel awkward. I know we don't do that because it feels funny. But if we're all doing it, it'll feel completely natural. Can you imagine the discipleship opportunities in our church if we just ate together and read scripture? That'd be fun. I'm excited about that. Finally, and lastly, our feasts open the door for evangelism. Our meals together create pathways for people to come into the community. I don't think it's a coincidence that that in those two verses, Luke says, day by day they met, broke bread. Day by day, people were being added to their number. I think people came into the church through these dinners. I think people were converted over dessert, not necessarily at the altar. Okay, I see. I believe in this Jesus. I, I, I have seen it at play in your home tonight. In our high-paced world, when we neglect food and we never stop to eat with one another and we just blister on ahead, tell me, where are you gonna evangelize? You you have to like wait and pray for the perfect opportunity. It's like you're passing your coworker in the hall. Is this the time? Is this the time? Okay, no, it's not the time next time. (laughs) Or you're going on a grocery, you're running in the grocery store, grabbing some errands. You're like, ah, I gotta get home. Okay, now if we're regularly engaged in rhythms of eating together and we prioritize this and we value this. You know what evangelism becomes? Tuesday night, come on over, we'll pull up a chair. It's the perfect opportunity to discuss the spiritual matters. We've done it in, this, in our home often. It's just easy to just talk. Let's talk about the Lord <laughs> with people that don't know the Lord. Let's open up and talk about what Jesus has done for us. 
Our meals open the door for evangelism. There's just a couple of reasons to eat. Again, I'm leaving off so many. Our meals reenact the gospel. They transform us. They unify us. They heal wounds. They open the door for discipleship. They open the door for evangelism. It's not the gospel, but man, it's a powerful tool. And we need to brush it off and, and consider maybe eating. Start at home with your family. Start with your neighbor. Start with other people. It's going to take a lot of investment, a lot of work, but I think it's completely worth it. I want to close with one final comment. I failed to mention to this point. I just want to talk to the people, and I know there's a lot, and this is growing. Food is complicated. Talk to the people that, for some reason, can't, are prevented. I've been down this road. About eight years ago, I got diagnosed with a an intestinal disease that restricted about 80% of my diet. And overnight, my life was changed. Um, when you can't eat food like that and you feel restricted, it almost, it's one of the darkest periods of my life. I felt like I was just kind of receding into the background. I felt less connected. I think cruel food-related diseases are very difficult um, because we're created to enjoy food. Our feasts bring us together. Happy Mother's Day. What are you going to eat? Congratulations, graduate. What do you want to eat? It's like what we do. It's, they bring us together. And so when you can't go out or you can't order that or you have to ask for a gluten-free menu, I, I've been there. You can, you can feel like you're missing out. And so um, let me encourage you if you're in that boat, just briefly. First off, l- let me say this to you. That shouldn't disqualify you from our life together. If you have 712 food allergies, Give me a list and I will do my best to cook some food for you, okay? We'll, we'll sit down with a giant bowl of applesauce and we'll just eat over applesauce. <laughs> Praise the Lord, he is good. Come to our home. And I think as a church, we should do that. Let's not let food allergies get in the way of us feasting together and coming to the table. That's not my primary point though. That's not what I wanna say to you because there's a deep, deeper spiritual point that I think we'd be missing. In fact, all of us need to hear this. I've mostly focused on feasting this morning because that's what the text said they did. They feasted. They enjoyed their food. They broke bread with glad and generous hearts. But I've also failed to mention maybe another element of the church's life that we should think about. They often fasted. They often stayed away from the table. We need to take a break every once in a while because we have to remember, we don't want to get focused on this food. This is temporary. This is temporary. There's a better feast coming. And if we get like too engrossed in these meals and, and that, that's bad. We, we don't focus on this temporary meal. They're a tool. They point us to Jesus. We don't work for food that perishes, as Jesus said. We work for food that endures to eternal life. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what fasting teaches us. And if for some reason you've not chosen this fast and the Lord has given it to you and it's limited your temporary participation at this table with these great creations that God has given you, but it's beginning to form in you a deep and everlasting hunger for God and 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 just an appetite, an insatiable appetite for that feast with him. Then consider yourself blessed. We need you. You're a leader in the church and we need your wisdom and we need to hear from you. With that, let's pray. Lord, we, um, we're very thankful for the simple gift of food and how wonderful it is and how we 
We're created to enjoy a simple blessing. But Lord, it's not just food that we're interested in. It's, it's the meal. It's all the ingredients chopped up and brought together and created into this wonderful meal. And that's kind of a picture of what happens to the community, Lord. We come in the door as individuals, Lord, with all of our quirks, with all of our desires and passions and gifts. And Lord, as we gather around the table, you, you, you infuse us into a meal, into a single body. And food brings us together like that. And we're thankful for that, God. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross, broke his body, shed his blood so that we could come to the table. We don't want to get lost in a discussion about food. We want to fix our eyes fully on Jesus. And when we gather around that table, come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let our daily bread be blessed. We want to gather with you. We want to eat with you. And so as we leave this room this morning and we go pick our restaurants or go open up the crock pot or whatever we're doing for lunch, God, would you be in our midst? Would you be with us? Would we reenact the gospel today? Would you transform us, unify us, let us grow spiritually? And Lord, we'd love it if people came to know you over lunch today. In Jesus' name, amen.